People still remember CDs? I had tapes too, but CDs were kind of like, that was the new technology and the cool thing to do. One of the first CDs that I had was called Jock Jams. Do you guys, <laughs> I, know, I just lost all credibility for, for music with anyone that cares about music, and I'm sorry for that. Uh, jock Jams, actually we had Jock Jams and Jock Rock, volumes one and two, both of those. Um, these were the songs that they play at the arenas, right? And they just kind of compiled them together onto a couple different, you know, sets of, of albums. And so we have Jock Jams and, and Jock Rock. And one of the, the songs I love to listen to on that were the songs that were like the entry music for teams. Like you, if you grew up, like I grew up uh, um, 90s, the Bulls were really big. Michael Jordan was a, a superstar. And so the song that I love to listen to over and over again was the Bulls entry music. You remember this? Like, you, you, I'm not, I don't have it queued up or anything right now. That would be awesome. I should have done that as I came up on the stage. But uh, listen to this intro music over and over again and just thought, man, what a great song to get pumped up to. And now, actually, you can look up this, this entry video that they have on YouTube, and it will show how dated uh, it, it was when Michael Jordan was getting introduced as a starter there. But it was some inspiring songs, like uh, songs to get you fired up as you went to, into a game or played a game. And, and these songs, they, they might have been good, they might have inspired me, but they weren't inspired, right? They, the Holy Spirit didn't breathe on these lyrics or these words or this music. But there was a, a divinely inspired uh, set of entry songs and entry music in, in, the, in the Bible. And that's the song of a sense. These are songs that, that the people of God would have sung as they go up to Jerusalem to worship. And so here in, in Psalm 122, we have a song, a psalm of a sense, sung by God's people in the promised land as they go up to Jerusalem. They were to do this, go up to Jerusalem, uh, many different times, three different times specifically throughout the year. So in Deuteronomy chapter 16, it says to the people of God, Moses instructs them before he fades off and lets them go into the promised land. He says, three times a year, your male shall appear before the Lord your God, the place that he will choose. Did not at that point in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, you never hear uh, Jerusalem, you only hear this is a place I'm going to choose, as if he's, he's telling them, you, you'll need to, when you get in there, depend upon the Lord, lean on him, and he's going to lead you, he's going to show this place to you. So there always to be a people moving on dependence upon the Lord, and, and he's going to show them this place that we're going to find out is Jerusalem, and you're going to do this three times a year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And so God's people are moving independence upon him, at least in this direction, three times a year, going up to Jerusalem. And that going up is not some sort of like, we're not talking about topography necessarily, although Jerusalem was kind of located up in the hills. We are mainly speaking of, when we're talking about going up, theologically, that this is the place to go worship. The, the pagan places, they would have known, they would have had high places. In other words, the pagans would go up to places to worship their gods, and, and Israel was to do something distinct. They were to go up, they were to go to this place to worship, but it was this place that God was choosing and marking off. And so these feasts, they would go up three times a year for them. And these feasts, all of them, they highlight who God is, the character and nature of their God, and they would highlight what he has done for them, and then they would call for them to have this proper response to all that he is and all that he's done 
for them in past, present, and what they looked forward for him to do. They were to give their praise and thanksgiving to God. And so here where they were, these feasts where God's people would just come and relish and celebrate and enjoy being God's, being the people that he rescued, being the people that he blessed with his presence and blessed them in the promised land. They would just come and, and relish and praise God for all those things and thank him. And so a psalm of ascent would capture some of that going up that three times a year. It would capture some of the praise and some of the anticipation of them going up to praise and thank God. And what Psalm 122 does is it captures a piece of that, those songs. It captures some of the joy of their arrival and the joy of them coming into Jerusalem. And it tells them in this psalm what they're to do once they get there. And here's what he's after. As God's people arrive, as they come with gladness to worship, they should be a people who do this one imperative that's in this psalm. And that is for they should be a people who pray for peace. And there are marks throughout this psalm of the people of God. There's marks of joy and gladness. There, there are the marks of you're coming up to give thanks. And there are marks of them as a people who come up with gladness and come to give thanks are marks as a people of God who worship together and pray together for peace. And so Psalm 122 is actually the third psalm of ascent. It, it's third, and that means that it's third, not just that it's the third one listed, it is the third, I think, in a series. And so if you take them in a series, it's, it's helpful to look at them and, and see more from Psalm 122. In Psalm 120, you start out with this cry in distress. In my distress, Psalm 120, verse 1, I called to the Lord. There's, there's distress here as the, this is the first song of ascent, and there's distress. And this, this person who cries out in their distress is, is stuck, not in the heavenly city, not in, the, not in Jerusalem. Look where they're stuck in verse 5. Hey, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents in Keter. Like he's, he's not in the right place and he's in distress. It's not a great picture. And Psalm 121 then moves and says, hey, this is a, such a great psalm. I lift my eyes to the hills. Like I'm, I'm looking forward to something. I'm looking for my help because I was in distress. I'm in kind of in a sense you could say 120 is in exile, I'm not in the right place, and I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, and he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And so you have the distress of 120, the cry for help and knowing where the source of their help is in 121, but you're still like you're going and you're coming. You're not where you're supposed to be just yet. And then you get to Psalm 122. And, and where do we start in Psalm 122? This is a song of a sense of David when he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. They start with this invitation and, and this arrival at the place that they were longing for when they are in Meshach and when they are up looking up to the hills. Finally, in Psalm 120, they arrived there and he says, I was glad when I was invited in to this place to go to the house of the Lord. And then he's going to say, our, our feet are there. And so you move from the need to the help and the source of that help to the arrival in this place of enjoyment and peace. And he calls for this response. And look how the psalmist says, I was glad. And they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. After Meshach and Keter, right? Like after looking to those hills for help and, and, and wanting relief, 
You're not there anymore. You get the gladness of arrival, the gladness of being brought in to this place where the house of the Lord is. They've been invited to the house of the Lord to worship. And notice that this song of ascent is not this song that's to be sung alone. There's a plurality here. It's not a solo journey. This is for the scattered people of God. And all the scattered people of God in their different tribes, in their different locations, are all going to go up to this one place, together going up to this place, together singing these songs to worship, and they were to go up to a particular place, and that is that God mercifully chose for his presence to dwell on the earth in the temple in this place that he directed them to put it, and he directed them to put this temple, the place where he would dwell, in Jerusalem. And so they were going up to that city together, not alone, together to worship and thank God, and the significance then of that place of Jerusalem, those hills and and that city for God's people is tied directly to it being where the temple is, where that is where God meets with them. That's where he dwells in their midst. That is where he dwells in the midst of this people. Notice the, the language. Let us go to the house of the Lord. That's what brings gladness. You, you see this emphasized so clearly in one of the most famous trips to go up to Jerusalem. It was found in, in Luke chapter 2. This is Mary and Joseph and the young Jesus at 12 years old going up to Jerusalem as faithful Israelites should and did do. Look in chapter 2 of Luke verse 41. His parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. They're faithful And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. They're they're doing the right kinds of things. And when the feast was ended, and as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went on a day's journey. Right? They're in a group. They're together. They were doing what the people of God were meant to do. They go up together. They're singing songs. Likely would have sung Psalm 122. And then they leave. And they leave and they make a, a parenting mistake that you never want to make. Right? Like you think your kid's with you and they're not. That's a bad one. So if you're looking for a reason to feel better about parenting, maybe this is the one. And they went and they they go a day's journey before they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. That seems like a long time. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And notice what Jesus says in response. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be looking at the architecture? Right? Taking in the sights, making new friends? No, what does he say? What's the highlight of the city? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? The the house of the Lord. That was the goal of the city, that God's dwelling in their midst. The highlight of the city, the, 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 the thing that drew the people wasn't to be some sort of place or location other than that that's where the Lord chose to put his presence. And so this is where Jesus is. He's in the Father's house, the house of the Lord. And so God's people, they go up with gladness and they're traveling now with friends and, and traveling with friends to go up to this place three times a year might be fun. They, they might have had some s'mores around the campfire as they go on their way. They might be eager to get to this feast because of the things that they've seen in the promised land have been a little bit difficult that year. But we know we're going to be this place where we're sharing with one another. We're going to feast and celebrate and give thanks But verse 1's gladness is explicitly because they go to the house of the Lord. The place where God is 
selected to meet with them. Their gladness is tied to his presence, to his worship. It's repeated over and over again in the Psalms. Like Again, what's repeated is not the joy of the celebrations themselves or of this location itself, but of meeting and worshiping God. Look at Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is kind of a brutal psalm, but in the midst of, of being really discouraged, here's what he says in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them into the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Like in the midst of his discouragement, he like throws his mind. Like I remember how glad I was when we went where? To the house of the Lord or in chapter 43, verse 4, then I will go. Here's what brings him joy. He said, I'm going to the altar of God, the place where God dwells among man. To God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre. Oh, God, my God. Or we look in Psalm 84. And he says in Psalm 84, how lovely. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they sing for joy to the living God. Or verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. What's the highlight for the psalmist isn't the city specifically in and of itself. It's, this is the place where the Lord is. It's the presence of the Lord that the psalmists are caring about. Their gladness it is because of God's presence dwelling in their midst. And they get to be the people that go up to this place. And the gladness is shared. He says, let us, there's a corporate body here, let us go up. And, and our feet, not my feet, our feet are the ones that are standing there. In other words, they're going up for corporate worship. They're going up to worship together and they're glad in it. And, and I wonder as we read this Psalm of Ascent, can we identify with the gladness of going up to worship the Lord together? I don't know what you play in your radio on the way here. That's not the point, right? Like we should have a sense of gladness as we go to worship the Lord. It's true of God's people across time that they were people who moved together to worship the Lord together and that there was some gladness and joy in it. And the worship of God in the presence of God with the people of God is and should be a source of joy for God's people. It wasn't Psalm 122, it brings him joy. It was throughout the Psalms, like the, the, the psalmists are constantly crying out, like, I remember that. That was so good in the midst of my discouragement, in the midst of me wandering around. I remember worshiping together. Life is full of the distresses that make us want to cry out, like Psalm 120, I cry out in my distress. There is this constant need for Psalm 121 to look up to the hills for help. Where's my help come from? Where's it coming from? Because I need it. There's constant need for that looking for the help. And the people of God, they might be scattered throughout the hills. They might be in Meshach. They might be all over the place. But when they go up as they're meant to, they get to go up together and they get to be glad together. God has given his people a place of reprieve and refreshment and enjoyment and gladness in their worship of him together. One author says it this way, that corporate worship is the single most important means of grace and our greatest weapon in the fight for Joy, he says. Would you put joy on the end of that? The single greatest weapon in our fight for joy? We might put something else on the end of there, but he says joy, and yet doesn't that fit exactly what David is saying in the Psalm of Ascent? Doesn't it fit his emotions that he has here? I was glad when they said, let's go up and worship the Lord. It fits. They were glad. It is an important means of grace, 
and our fight for joy. And there's joy at this arrival in Jerusalem. Maybe they are fresh off a new deliverance because they're crying out in Psalm 120. And then they started moving and they're calling out because, hey, where's my help come from? And they know it comes from the Lord. And so they keep moving in dependence upon him. Maybe they have a fresh deliverance, but they're especially glad because they're going where? To the house of the Lord. And after the places of 120 and the trek of 121 and looking to the hills, Jerusalem is a relief. And a marvel even. You see the words, oh, oh, Jerusalem in verse 2. And then he says, Jerusalem, verse 3, built as a city that's bound firmly together. It's God's people go up, again, go up. It's, it's theological language, worship language. As they go from, from Psalm 120 to 121, they, they would have looked up. Right? And some of their going up wasn't up. And as they would have looked up, they would have seen some walls. You know, at some point in Israel's history, there were some walls put up, and they would have seen a city on top of that hill. They would have seen those walls, and they would have thought, man, that's where we need to be, because as we're on this trek, like, it can be kind of dangerous along the way, and, and we don't have protection other than what we can provide ourselves, and yet we get to go to that place where maybe we can lay down our stuff and rest and take a deep breath a little bit, because we don't have to hold our sword in quite the same way, because there's walls there, and there's people already there watching over things. It would have been a, a sign of relief. That's a place where people can flee to and be secure, they would have thought, as they see those walls. And, and it was described here in verse 3 with a, a, a bit of an uncommon unity, don't you? you think? Built as a city that's bound firmly together, was it really all constructed all that great? It's not because of the architecture and the way they, they put the, the, the brickwork and how they put them together that they, they're specifically just singing about and thinking about here. This is a place where God's people can come together. Look, look at verse 4. It fits right along with this. This is a place that's bound firmly together to which the tribes, there, there's a plurality there, there's 12 of them there, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, they go up together to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Twelve scattered tribes scattered throughout the promised land, all over the place, and twelve different tribes scattered throughout. They ascend all to this one place to worship this one God. They're all united at this place as the tribes of the Lord. Not as twelve tribes, but here we are as the people of God, the tribes of the Lord. And those words alone recall a rich history of God's grace. God took a, a pagan man, an idol-worshiping man named Abram, and he called them and he said, hey, guess what? You can't have children and you don't have any land, but I'm going to give you children and I'm going to give you a land. Like, how did that happen? Because Abraham deserved it? Nope, because God was gracious and said, I'm going to do this in and through you, and he does. And so a man who has a wife who's barren and has no kids, all of a sudden is going to become the father of, of many and, and he has a man who has no stake within the promised land, has, has no claim to Jerusalem or any area around there. God's going to give him that land. Or, or we think a, a couple generations down to Jacob. Here's a, a man who has 12 sons, right? He has 12 kids. And if you, you know anything about the 12 tribes, those original kids, they, they were a mess. They were fighting all the time. There was all kinds of problems. They were threatened multiple times. Their lives were threatened multiple times, specifically when they were taken into Egypt where they were sheltered for a while and then these 12, like they keep multiplying, but Pharaoh keeps getting more and more unhappy about this people being there and they're threatened with their very existence and they're enslaved in Egypt. Right, they're as far away from Psalm 122 as they could be in Egypt. Right? They're, they're not in any place that God wanted them, to, that he was going to show Abraham. They're not in the promised land. They're under the thumb of Pharaoh. Like they're, 
They're not enjoying the gladness of corporate worship. Like they're, they're having to sing the songs of slavery. But God, in that place, in the midst of their slavery, in the midst of a superpower that was Egypt, God shows his power. And it's so great that the world knows that this is a people whose God is different. This God, he, he does things differently. He and his name are great. But God rescues them. And because that God has rescued them, these tribes that were threatened with extinction, because that God rescued them, pulled them out of slavery, and delivered them into this place that they call the promised land where they can enjoy all of its rich benefits, they go up. And they go up to worship as one God's people go to Jerusalem, not just for a reunion, not just for the sites. Listen to in verse 4 why they go up. They go up, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. They go up to worship. They go up because God is worthy of their obedience and their joyful giving of thanks. The joy of their arrival, it gives way to them giving thanks to the Lord. It's, this is the Lord who they're in covenant with because he redeemed them as his own people. And it's that Lord who delivered them into that promised land and called them to that very place to worship. And so they give thanks. And in this place, they also look forward to verse 5. That there in that place, thrones of judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. There was a house in verse 1, the house of the Lord. Uh, and that's the central feature for Jerusalem. But here in verse 5, there's another house. Jerusalem has the house of the Lord and the house of David. The house of David. It's a place, there was a house of the Lord, it was a place of worship. The house of David is the place for the king. If you go back, right after God told them and instructed them in Deuteronomy 16 to go up to Jerusalem three times a year, he gives them instructions for king. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. This king, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself, for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so the king has this throne, and this throne is the place where he's going to rule, and he's to do it a certain way, that the king is to rule according to what? God's law, which is a law that is like, reveals and reflects this perfect righteousness from God. The king is to rule righteously. The king is to rule justly. So he's going to hold justice over the people in his care. And so these thrones in verse 5 of judgment are, are the place for the people of God to come for justice to be upheld, for, for right judgments, for, for all the goodness of God to be reflected in a king who rules like God because he's listening to and following and living in light of the law of God. And so as Israel, they recall their, their story, they would go up hopefully to this place, these thrones, with great joy. If you recall the Exodus, like, hey, th th there's not a lot of justice going on here in Egypt. A lot of injustice. Or as they would have moved through life and thinking about life without the king. Think of the book of the Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it was a, a disaster. And, and the Lord answers that disaster with, with setting up a king. 
Right? They would have remembered. They could have looked around in their promised land and looked at the other nations and seen how their kings reign and rule at their whims according to what they desire at the time. And they could have said of verse 5, no, this king is to be different. He's to rule righteously and with justice. He's upholding good things. And so that would have made them glad as well for the reality of verse 5. Indeed, there to be a people who pray. In Psalm 72, we see a prayer Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. This is what they were hoping for. This is what they were looking for. And so verse 5 was a delight to them as they would have thought about it. David, after in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he says, I think I'll make a house for the Lord. God says, actually, I'm going to make a house for you. This is what it says of, of David in 2 Samuel chapter 8. It says, David reigned over all Israel, and David administered what? Justice and equity to his people. Where you look ahead to 1 Kings, and you think the reign of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 7, and in verse 7 it says, And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished from the cedar to the floor to its rafters. This was a place for these thrones of judgment that Psalm 122 talks about. And with that throne presence, a place of judgment that's just and righteous, it's easy to see why Jerusalem could be described as these 12 tribes go up there to receive right judgment. It's easy to see why this place could be described as uncommonly sturdy, as a place that's bound firmly together. This is a place of unity and righteousness. Now, this is also a place to be a place of prayer. With those, with their feet in the city, here's what the psalmist calls them to do. Verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers for my brothers and, my, and companions' sake. I will say peace be within you for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. I will seek your good. So the people of God, the 12 tribes scattered throughout the promised land, are invited as one to come and worship and give thanks to the Lord. They've arrived, they give thanks in unity, and now they're bidden by the psalmist here in the song of ascent to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Verse 6, it's the only imperative in the psalm and seems to be exactly what the psalmist is driving at, what the point is. It's what he's pushing for with every word seems to be leading up to this is the reason why verse 6 should happen. This is why you should give thanks and this is why you should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He's been using every word for this particular outcome among the people of God. Now let's think about that word peace within the context of what he's been describing. Peace in this context is to have some sort of safety within and without. I like how one commentator describes it. This is calm, undisturbed by social conflict within, and dread of enemies without. Both of those are present here. It's the well-being that is composed of both well-doing and doing well. All those things are present here. Right? If, the, if the king is on this throne, he's ruling justly, and these people are coming up for justice, and they're coming up to give, like, notice all those elements are there within the psalm. And so when we think about peace, we're talking about the, uh, a calm that's undisturbed by social conflict within and dread of enemies without, the well-being that is composed of both well-doing and doing well. And as the psalmist calls the people of God to pray for this peace, now I think there are really two clear and distinct reasons why he tells them to do this. They're marked off by for the sake of 
in our text. And the first one we see in verse 8. It says, For my brothers and, for the, and companions' sake, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem for, for brothers, for this family, this family of God, for all these people who are here. Pray this for others. In, in verse 1, let us go up. Verse 2, our feet are there. Uh, may they, in verse 6, there's a concern all the way through this psalm for one another. There's concern for brothers. There might be some literal brothers that are in here, but surely he's expanding that. Like, for the people that are here, we need to pray for peace, for the people of God. And explicitly, verse 8, for my brothers and companions' sake, pray this. For the sake of brothers, pray that there be a place secure for them. That's what he wants, a a calm both within and without, that kind of place. That's what he wants for himself, that he wants for his companions, his brothers, the 12 tribes. And and so when verse 7 talks about walls and towers, those things matter. Even the physical structures of those things matter because here we have Jerusalem, this city that's so vital and central and important to their life. It was the political capital, a place where the king himself would sit where he would rule and reign, where justice would be doled out, where, where they would need, with this political capital, with this king sitting on the throne, they would need uh, walls and towers as a defense for their, from their enemies. But it matters, and this place matters, as a secure defense for the right protection to go on within Jerusalem as well. Notice all the withins in the text. Within Within, within, it's repeated over and over again. They should pray, and within the context, they should pray for things like, we want peace from enemies without, but they also should be praying for peace from the enemies that might be within the city. They should pray that the context of verse 5, where this king is sitting on this throne of judgment and can rule rightly and justicely to continue for the sake of one another and their brothers, that the good of God's people is tied to Jerusalem's peace It's tied to how Jerusalem goes, so the people of God are going to go, because that's where the king's to rule, and that's where peace is to be seen and to be then move outward from there. And so for the sake of brothers. And the second reason, and most importantly, and clearly most importantly, is for the sake of the house of the Lord, verse 9. The house of the Lord. This is where the Lord dwells. Literally within the city would be the temple, and within the temple is the holy place, and within the holy place is the most holy place, the holy of holies. This is where they would have had the presence of God dwells in the midst of man, and so they had specific laws for who can go in and how they can go in, and all those things, sacrifices and blood had to be done in order for someone to go in because God, this holy God who rescued them and saved them, was in that place. And you, you kept those laws. You, you, you spilled blood and you took it into that place because you trusted that that, that, it, that God is there and he is real. Amen. And so this place, it's a place that's marked by God's presence, by God's name. It's a place where his king is and where his people are to come and, and to dwell in safety and security and receive the safety and security of right judgments as they dwell with one another. Jerusalem is this word and the city that's repeated in this and perhaps part of the allure and wonder and beauty of the city kind of captures the psalmist as they've been dealing with the wilderness. And so they might think of Jerusalem, wow, what a place, what a place. But notice that David, he he doesn't want anyone guessing as to what is central and most important to this command as he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Like, what do they go up to Jerusalem to do? To admire the stones? To, to, to think about the intricacy of how they laid out the wall. No, they, they don't do that. They go to give thanks. They go to worship. 
They're going to, to proclaim the greatness of the name of their God. And so think about the structure of the psalm itself. It's all crying out to us, not of the greatness of Jerusalem, but of something else. The structure of the psalm. So in verse 1 of, of Psalm 122, it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Look in verse 9. For the sake of what? The house of the Lord our God. On either end of this psalm, we call it an inclusio, is its kind of technical term. On either end of the psalm, it is a sandwich of the house of of the Lord. And notice when we get to verse 9 that that house of the Lord expands a little bit to just give it a touch more emphasis that this is what the psalmist wants us to see and know about. This is the house of the Lord our God. It's even more expanded for further emphasis. At first, he says, like, we want to go up, and I was glad when we went up to what? To go to the house of the Lord, not to go specifically to Jerusalem. David especially would have known the difference. Because he lived in a place where the, the temple wasn't the temple, right? And the, the Lord's presence had to, like, we had to move the, the altar. Remember? He had to do all those things. So when he says, I'm going to the house of the Lord, he means the house of the Lord. He, he doesn't maybe necessarily specifically think of Jerusalem first, but the house of the Lord first, where God dwells. Which would have come to be in Jerusalem, but it wasn't Jerusalem first. And then we look in the, the structure of the psalm again. One and nine are, are the sandwich, but right in the middle, what is central to the psalm is verse five. Uh, on either side, you have kind of two sets of verses, and right in the middle is verse 5. So you have a sandwich of house, and in the middle you have a house. Right, verse 5, the thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. It, it's right in the center, and it's a different house, but it's a house that's within the sandwich, right? It's a house within the house. And I think that that means more than just that it was located in this psalm in the middle. One author suggests this, and I think rightly, why the, while the house of the Lord is central, its position in the psalm and thus its authority are encompassed by the house of the Lord. David certainly would have understood his place as the king as one that was given to him by God, one he did not earn or achieve, but the one was rightly sitting under the authority of God. That's how the people of God would have understood if they're reading Deuteronomy, and they were to read Deuteronomy. That's how they would have understood that the, the house of David was to say, this is a king, but this is a king under authority. He, he reigns with authority, but that authority is then under the authority of the one true living God. He's the one whose rule this king is to be carrying out. And so right here in the middle is another house, but it's a house under the authority of the house of the Lord. And so what's communicated is that, yeah, Jerusalem, this city where the house of the Lord is, is so important, but it's important is vitally tied to this being the place where the Lord dwells. That this is the place where the house of the Lord is. It's not the land itself. It's not the structures themselves. It's not that precise location on the map itself. But the presence of God that's ultimate in this psalmist's description of the importance of this place. And that's going to really matter as we think through what Jerusalem is for us. The imperative from verse 6 that he puts on the, the people, the, all the people of God to pray, that they be a praying people, is then if this place is that important because the house of the Lord is there, this is no command where you can just say, well, like, I'll get around to it when I can. Like, that's not how the psalmist is thinking of this command at all. Because the house of the Lord here is pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's how he's saying it. We need the king have, ruling justly here. Pray for this peace of this place. I, I care about my brothers and companions. And so we need to pray for the peace of this place. This is peace that he would have known with the Lord. Peace that they were to know among one another. This is a prayer that he then puts on the lips, not just of the king, 
There's not just a select few. There's not priests mentioned here. He puts this prayer on the lips of the people of God who go up to Jerusalem to praise God. So all these 12 tribes, all these people that are going up, they're the ones to pray. So who are to pray? All of God's people are to pray this prayer. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May, may they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls. Security within your towers. That's what they're to pray. And so this is the, the point of Psalm 122. This is what David once stirred up among the people of God. He wants this people to be a people who will pray for the peace of Jerusalem. One author says this, that the main point of this psalm is that Israelites should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then he asks, and this is the, the big question, right? Is this also its message for Christians today? Should we Christians pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Here's the answer. And I agree wholeheartedly, of course, of course we should. Even as we should pray for the peace of Damascus and Gaza City and Boston and Paris and Rome and Enid, we could just keep adding on there. But the Jerusalem for which Psalm 122 urges us to pray has evolved. We think about the life of Jesus. Jesus, he, he perhaps had Psalm 122 on his lips in Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, listen to what he says as he goes to Jerusalem. When he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for what? Peace. Psalm 122 might be rattling around in his mind as he goes up to the place. Would you have known the things that make for peace? But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And as Jesus weeps over this and says, well, man, if they would have known, Jesus still moves forward with the joy that's set before him. He's not concerned in this as he repeats these words in, in his weeping over Jerusalem. He's not concerned here. He's concerned for the city, but he's not concerned for one thing that is central to Psalm 122. You know what he's not concerned for? The house of the Lord. Why? Because the house of the Lord has evolved a bit, hasn't it? In the book of John, we see this really great word, right? In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 1, 14, it says, And this Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacled among us. It's really interesting that He, he, makes it, he writes it that way so that we would know that the place where God meets now is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That man and God are no longer going to meet in the temple. They're going to meet in Jesus this is why he says in John chapter 2, verse 19, hey, you tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days because he's not talking about the stones in Jerusalem. He's talking about his own body. Amen. So the, the place where God and man meet now is in the person of Jesus. And the true temple, Jesus Christ, he entered, he tabernacled among us. He came into this world. He took on flesh. And guess what? He was destroyed. The, he died. The, the curtain to the physical temple at that point also did something when that happened as well. It ripped in two, giving us clear signal, probably of a little bit of judgment on the temple, but also a clear sign that now that the place where you get to meet with God has shifted. And not only did he come down as the true temple, not only was he destroyed, but he also rose. 
defeating death. So here's the one who, when he goes to Jerusalem, knows exactly what uh, is, is in waiting for him there when he gets there, knowing that the temple, the true temple is going to be destroyed. But he also goes with the joy set before him because he knows no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord and I will take it up again. Amen. He goes with the hope of the resurrection. And before he ascends into heaven on high, you know what he said to his disciples? My peace, I'm going to leave with you. I'm going to give you peace. And what does he give them? He gives them his spirit the very presence of God dwelling within them. And so the presence of God dwells, right? Where does it dwell now? Where does it dwell according to Jesus? It's no longer in the Holy of Holies. That curtain has been torn. We don't need to go there anymore to to meet with God, to worship God. It, It dwells in the midst of God's people. That's where he gives his very presence. Like, Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It says it really beautifully. In Ephesians chapter 2, what we have is, is in verse 6, we've been raised with him. Verse 6, so there, there's a, we, we're with him, we're one with him. We've been raised with him. And then we go to verse 13, we've been brought near. Verse 14, with him we have peace. He himself, in verse 14, is our peace. We look in verse 17, he is the one who came and preached pre- peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Like peace is all over the place and and those who are from various backgrounds, all sorts of different places are now brought near by the blood of Christ. He is the one who himself is their peace and brings them near as one. So we have a a diversity and yet a unity here. It's a beautiful thought that he's giving. And so you are no longer, chapter or verse 19, strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of what does he say in verse 19? The household of God. Now that's an interesting phrase. And this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So, so the house is not the, the, not the apostles aren't the whole house. The, the prophets aren't the whole house. Jesus is the cornerstone. Who's the house then? It's normal, ordinary people who've been raised with Christ. The ones that were far off and were all over the place that he brought near by his blood. Those are the people who are now the household of God. And the whole structure is now joined together. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit of God. Sojourn. This is a dwelling place for God. Look around at faces. If they're in Christ Jesus and you're in Christ Jesus, you can know that you're in the presence of God. God dwells in our midst. He dwells in the midst of his people. Like, here we are. Now the, we're, we are scattered far. Like, we're in Enid. Like, we're a long ways away from a lot of these things where they are written in the context they were, they were written down in. And yet, here we are, household of God. This is the place where God's presence in our midst together uniquely dwells, according to Ephesians, according to the New Testament, according to Scripture. And so let's ask this, how do we go to the house of the Lord? Well, we go where God's people are gathered. That's how we go to the house of the Lord. We go where they're gathered. One author just said it briefly. What Jerusalem was to the Israelite, the church is to the Christian. Think about this. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, like we're going to a a heavenly Jerusalem. We're talking, even uses the word city when he's speaking about the church there. There's a heavenly reality, a a city-like reality, a Jerusalem-like reality that's present and true of us as a people of God together. 
And so when we look back at the psalm through this lens, it certainly helps us think through it rightly, doesn't it? Right? They come up and they said, I was glad when they said to us, let us go to the house of the Lord. Gladness marked David and his company and the people that were on this, this trek up to Jerusalem. Surely that wasn't the case always with Jerusalem. Like when they're going up, sometimes they're thinking, this place is fraught with difficulty. The kings are terrible. Our enemies are pouncing upon us. Seems like everywhere. Sometimes they probably wouldn't have gone up with gladness or different levels of gladness, but it should mark us as we gather because we are the church who now, who, we have God's presence in our midst and, and actually it can't be torn down because we know that it's going to survive through the end of the ages, right? So we can go with this gladness as we gather together that we're going to worship the one true living God. And, and Jesus said to us like, hey, should we worship in Jerusalem or should we worship in this hill? That's what he was asked by the, the woman at the well. And he says, actually, spirit and truth, that's how you worship. That place, the place where there's the spirit and the place where there's truth, that's where you're going to worship. And so we get to go up with that gladness that we are worshiping the one true living God and that his presence is in our midst this morning. They were marked with gladness. How much more should we be marked with gladness? They they come to verse 5 and they would have thought, man, the nation's kings are crazy. There are all kinds of injustice that we've seen in their lands. And sometimes our kings aren't so good. But we go up with this hope that verse 5, this is going to be a place where there's thrones of judgment and justice and righteousness. They knew of that in David. They would have known some of it in Solomon and a few other kings along the way. But, but, But not always. And we know the house of David was built by God himself. And he put his anointed on that throne. That anointed, his son, the one who tabernacled among us, who took on flesh and came, this is the one in this house who's going to reign forever. And his reign is an eternal reign of justice and righteousness. He will not ever fail his people. He will never fail to protect what is fully right all the time, every time. And so we get to go up with this expectation that this throne of judgment in the house of David is one that's eternal and right and good and true for all. So they went up to give thanks for such a thing, and how much more should we go up and give thanks? And so we go back to the question. Well, the the exhortation, the command is, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Yes, and we should pray for the peace of Enid and all kinds of other different places. But yes, especially because we should pray for where the Lord's presence is. That's how we're to think of it now, right? Where does God dwell now? He dwells in the midst of his people. So what should we pray for? We should pray for Jerusalem, the physical location, yes. And we should also pray, especially in light of what we know of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what Paul and the others have given us in the New Testament. When we think about praying for the peace of Jerusalem, we should, think we should pray for the peace of his church where he dwells among his people. And the why here isn't hard because God's name now marks us. His presence is in the midst of us. That means for us as the people of God, as it meant for Jerusalem then, that the battle lines have been drawn, that there's a real war going on, that things are going to be hard for us. The, lots of people throughout history have called the church that's here on earth the church militant. It's not like we're trying to take territory, although there's been some the problems with that as well. That's not what the idea is. The church militant is the church here on earth that's still in a real battle. And the real battle is not against flesh and blood only. It's against powers and principalities. And we're told in the New Testament about this one who is a devil. He, he, what he likes to do, what he's defined by, dividing, stealing, destroying, that's what he wants to do. And where does he want to aim that at? Well, surely the house of the Lord, God's people is on his sights and in his targets. And, and guess what? He prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus said it when he said, hey, guess what? The, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. One of the only two times he talked about church. He, you know why that he has to say that? Because it looks like sometimes like they will. 
Because there's a real battle going on. The gates of hell are... Hell? Man, hail. <laughs> the gates of hell are at war. And we need to know it. We are the church militant. And in the midst of that, here's what Jesus promises us. Doesn't that make it so much better? We're not in peacetime. And because we're not in peacetime, hear the promise. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. They'll try, but we get to pray for the peace of this church and that they would experience such peace with God and peace with one another and then that peace would be known by them and they would spread out throughout the whole earth as they go out with the message that says you can have peace with God too through our Lord Jesus Christ. You might be far off, he can bring you near and you can be one of us and then we'll keep spreading that peace over and over again and although we have battle lines that are drawn, we get to pray for peace with all kinds of hope and certainty that while we may not have peace here and now, finally and fully, that the church militant is going to give way to the church, what they also call the church triumphant, where the church, because of our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of his church, is going to bring us finally and fully into victory. And so what should we do with the command of Psalm 102? Should we pray for peace? Yes, we should pray for the peace of the church that's in the midst of battle as the church militant. Pray these words. May, like, may that church be secure. May the people of you, God, be secure who love you. Peace be within that church because there's all kinds of things within and without that threaten to pull us apart. For the sake of our brothers, for the sake of peace within us, for the sake of the name of the Lord in our midst, we want to seek the good of the church and we do that with certainty, but this psalm for us should lead to this anticipation not just a peace in our midst here and now, but an anticipation for us for a city, a Jerusalem that is to come, right? When we hear Jerusalem, we ought to be pointed forward. Amen. It's what we see when we look ahead is we get to look with anticipation that there's a city coming whose it's, it's marked fully by God and His presence and His people basking in, relishing in the light of His presence as a people. There's no walls in this place. There's no enemy anymore. Like it's finally and like gone, done. And, and everyone, no one is worried about the, the peace within the walls anymore because he has won it and we don't look to one another in the wrong ways anymore. We just keep looking at him. And so this psalm leads us to this anticipation to pray for peace but to know that it's coming soon with the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? As the church militant, we get to take a, a kind of a, a church triumphant meal in the midst, midst of being the church militant. This Lord's Supper, as we look back at the Lord Jesus and his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out, we, we, we take this meal as an anticipation. Look what he's won for us. He himself is our peace. Not just my peace, he is that. Hopefully, if you have faith in Jesus, he is your peace, but he is our peace. He himself is our peace. We get to take this as a family, as a people who are at peace with one another through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we do it with great anticipation that the one who came, the one whose advent we celebrate, we're going to look forward to another advent to come where we're going to be taken to a new Jerusalem and we're going to dine together in peace. Let's pray and take this meal in anticipation of that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we gather here this morning. We ascend together because you descended to us, Lord. We enjoy your peace because you entered, Lord, our chaos.
It is why we celebrate Christmas. Father, help us as your people, as your temple, as we go out from this place, Lord, and blend into our jobs and our families, the busyness of life. God, help us to stand out, to be beacons of light and truth and justice. God, help us to speak the gospel with our lives and with our words. Lord, might your peace just reign in our hearts and in our lives, God. Help us to reflect your great glory. In Christ's name, amen.